Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. I was once described as the manager, the mentor, and the visionary who went to the theater with an unfocused dilettante and raised the curtain on a superstar. Hello and welcome to episode 41 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, the management rights company which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. While allowing Main Man artists to explore their creative freedom, the company pioneered promotion and marketing techniques that became synonymous with the decadence, extravagances and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. It was outrageous. Lou's gay one day, straight to you don't know what Lou is. So if we were anything, we were like sexual outlaws because we were out there. Main Man worked with a diverse range of clients that included Marianne Faithful, Amanda Lear, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, Lou Reed, David Bowie and Iggy Pop. We'd always been keenly aware of everything Lou Reed did. And uh, both James and I were big listeners to uh, both editions of the Velvet Underground. In the last episode, main man founder Tony DeFries recalled the period in 1971 when he worked with Marianne Faithful, attempting to revive her career after she'd had several lean years. And through DeFries, Marianne met David Bowie, who invited her to be part of his 1980 floor show at the Marquee Club in London in October 1973. So it's a great opportunity to delve into the Main Man archive and hear Marianne herself recalling how she came to be part of that now legendary TV show. David chose the Marquee to film the concert because it was his favourite music venue in London, where the management gave him plenty of bookings early in his career and really helped him out. No, there's a lot of interesting stuff, so I, I, I won't talk about it beforehand. Expect me to bang on. In setting the scene for her appearance, Marianne started out by recalling the days when she used to go to the marquee back in the 60s. I wrote about this in my autobiography and um, I was rather crushed when I read um, a particularly nasty review by the singer in the Manfred Mann group, Paul Jones. Yes, ah, you see, I did remember before you even told me. And um, who obviously didn't believe me and had never seen me there or anywhere like that. But in fact, what I used to do when I was sort of 14, 15, 16, my mum was really cool with me, trusted me. I don't know why I, I was perfectly all right. I, it may have been so beautiful that nobody would come near me. That's what would happen. And I would go up to the Marquis and to the Flamingo and to Ilpai Island, on my own, or with a few friends. But I would always then just sort of circulate. I, I didn't... I th well, I did... I don't think I even drank. No. I'm sure I didn't. And I didn't smoke, and I didn't take any drugs. I didn't know anything about that. And I don't even realise now, I don't, I'm not sure why I even did that, except that it was London. I lived in Reading, which is... Dear old Reading, it's famous, and this kind of sums it up, for the Ballad of Reading Jail. And that's where Oscar Wilde went to prison, and he was in Reading Jail. And it really wasn't a very interesting place. And as soon as I was old enough, I, I would be allowed to go out. I mean, maybe I'm making myself a bit young, 
but I'm not so sure. I know when I was about 14, 15, I liked jazz and I liked English jazz. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I used to go to jazz festivals with my friends, Sally Oldfield. Sally and me and these boys from the boys' school next door to our convent, which was a Quaker school called Dayton Park. And we would go, I mean, it was really nice and completely innocent and exactly what teenage years should be like. I'm sure they were all, all of them completely madly in love with me and Sally, you know. But we, in the way of beautiful girls, 14, 15, 16, didn't pay the slightest attention to that. We just liked them and... And it was it was a lot of guitars. They all played guitar. And that was when I got very interested in folk music. So sitting by the Thames in Henley, playing down by the banks of the Ohio, that kind of thing. Beautiful, beautiful, happy times. And then my mother used to make me um, really cool clothes. Really great. And I... I think that's what I really liked, was to put on the new thing she'd made me, which I would say what I wanted, and then she would make it, and it was so great, like sort of brown corduroy skirt, quite short, not not a mini skirt, but quite short, with a silk blouse with sort of big puffed sleeves like that, long, and then um, a brown corduroy waistcoat to go with it, you know, just wonderful with my long blonde hair and all that stuff. And I, I obviously didn't meet any of these. I wasn't going to meet musicians. I was going for some kind of... Um, and I'm sure there were many, many doing that, especially if you were sort of stuck in some ghastly form of Middle England like I was. I mean, not posh, two up, two down, Millman Road in Reading, but still very sort of early 60s life. It was very like the 50s. I've kind of liked the 50s. I don't have a big gripe about that. I think it was a really interesting time. And I'm never quite sure that the 60s were quite as swinging as everybody thinks they were. But anyway, that's just my opinion. So I would go up and I remember the marquee and it was a scene and it would be... I think I really went up to watch. And I've always had this thing where I can become or I think I can become invisible. And in those days, it wasn't actually a sociopathic practice. I think it became sociopathic later, you know, when I was really anorexic and penniless and living on the street. And I was convinced I was invisible. And that was kind of sick. But in in my sort of teenage years, before I met anybody or did anything, just going to school with Sally and reading all the books on the Catholic Index, that was our mission, listening to jazz. I guess I was lucky. The first record I've ever bought, me, myself, well, the first record I bought was Brown-Eyed Handsome Man by Buddy Holly as a single. But the first LP I bought was Sketches of Spain, which is a sort of miracle, really. Your little girl in Reading goes to buy first LP, and that's what caught me. And it's sort of always been like that for me, with books, too. I go for something about it. I did know things from other people a little bit, but I hadn't met my sort of mentors yet at all. You know, my first person who who turned me on to Billie Holiday, for instance, was John, my, my first husband, my first boyfriend. And that was really important, but I hadn't got there yet. It was sort of Joan Baez, Odetta, all that kind of stuff, and um, Miles Davis. And I liked these English jazz bands. I thought they were really good. And a lot of fun. Those things like jazz at Bewley and all that stuff was really good fun. 
And I think from that it kind of developed. And I would get the train with Sally or, or even on my own. But I guess I usually must have had somebody with me. Although I was very free. Ten and six from Reading Station to Paddington and go to Soho. And I liked the marquee. I mean, I didn't like it more than I liked... I think I liked your island best. Um, and I must have seen these guys. They were just there. They were part of the whole show. It wasn't just the music. It was the whole show. And it was really interesting. And I wanted to know what was happening. Very curious, as any one of my friends will tell you. And I wanted to watch it and not be involved, because I, I knew I was too young. I wasn't completely stupid. I don't remember ever paying a penny, but I do remember very clearly my teenage years and, and what fun I had. This is the bit where I start to feel left out and deprived because what I really should have been doing was just carrying on like that, being a student, I guess. Normally, if dear old bloody Andrew Oldham hadn't gone and discovered me, and I'm really glad in a way, you know, but in another way, I can see how my life would have been if I'd stayed in England and gone to university, maybe in London or maybe in Oxford or wherever I went, I mean, there were so many things I could have done. I was thinking of going to drama school, that would have been in London. And then I would have carried on like that. My mother would have gone on making me these lovely, cool clothes. And I would have just slowly sort of opened in the, in the, in another, in a different, not, not quite in so. I don't know, I don't want to put it down. I know. I don't know. I just still don't know how I feel. But by 64, As Tears Go By became a hit. And I was out on tour with uh, the Hollies and Jerry and the Pacemakers and all that, which was also great fun. But it meant that I didn't have the time or the energy to go out. I didn't have the time or the energy until I ran away with Mick. And then because he had some money... I didn't have to work, for which I am very grateful. Oh, I, I, think I must have done when I met um, Charlie and Shirley and all that, because I, you know, I actually got close to Charlie and Shirley really at the same time as I made great friends with Andrew. I've, I, was, I am still very fond of Andrew. And Charlie and Shirley were like my... I really looked up to them. I thought... I remember going to see their first... I thought it was very, very grand, but it wasn't really. Flat in Ivor Court, just off Baker Street. And I thought, this is how it should be. This is like the most beautiful, arty, young, hip, married. And that's what I wanted. I do remember that. And I'm sure I went to see some shows. I remember going to see Nina Simone really quite early on. Oh, I mean, I was young. So I think I missed a bit of that in the 60s and I might have gone but I, I might not have that wasn't um, I lost interest in all that I never lost interest in Miles Davis but I got very interested in American music um, very interested in Otis Redding when I ran away with Mick I mean he was brilliant for my sort of artistic education and Keith of course then I started to get really interested in black music but maybe I, I got kind of deluxe and only liked going to rather posh places for a bit. I think it might have been too scruffy for me in the sort of mid-60s because I missed a lot of things just from sheer snootiness, you know. I would go once 
And if I thought it wasn't grand enough, I wouldn't go again. So I did actually see the Pink Floyd once at um, somewhere, one of those mad places. I can't remember what they were called, Middle Earth or... One, I can't remember. And I did see the famous moment where dear, darling, poor Sid flipped. I actually saw that and I never went back. It was too scary. Anyway, we're not talking about that. But I knew, I knew that the marquee, I knew what was happening. I knew, obviously, probably through Charlie and Jeff Beck and Eric. And, all. I mean, and not that I would be listening, but they would be banging on about it. And it was a fun place to go late at night. You'd see all your friends. You know, I, I could go and there would be Paul and there would be Jimi Hendrix and I would go with Mick and it was fun. I liked it. That was fun, that sort of thing. Yes, it was very, very, very much a sort of... You had to be in... the in. You had to know. I didn't think the public knew much about it. So moving from the 60s into 1973, how did you get to be part of the 1980 floor show at the Marquee with David? Well, that was really interesting by 1973, I'd gone through a hell of a lot already. I'd become a heroin addict. I'd left home, lived on the street. I met David, actually, at Gem Music, and we immediately connected. And, of course, I didn't see, only with hindsight can I see what he must have seen. He's a very sensitive, incredibly sensitive sort of psychic person and he saw what he saw somebody in a lot of trouble but very proud but we just did connect and we began to make friends and we did make friends and um it was the first time i got a view of what had been going on through somebody of a younger generation i mean david isn't really that much younger than me and he was there in the 60s. But his big moment came a bit later. You know, I mean, I, I think he was even on my first tour. So we became friends and I knew his troupe. I would call it his troupe. He was surrounded by these amazing people that were sort of... It was real early 70s London. At the time, my friends, one of my great friends, was Kit Lambert and David and Derek Jarman and all that sort of thing. We became friends, and he obviously had his own sort of plan and his own thing he wanted to do. But he had seen something, and, you know, there was nothing happening. I wasn't recording. I didn't even know if I wanted to. I was also learning to live very, very cheaply, which wasn't such a bad thing, actually. Hard, but quite a good thing to learn. Anyway, he wanted me on this show. And he inspired me a lot. It was after I met David I started to write again, started to write lyrics, listen to him. I didn't copy him, but I realised that... I can't explain it. It was just inspirational. And I believe that's what he wanted. For me, I think for him, it wasn't it the last manifestation of Ziggy. And it's really a great show. And I'm amazed that it's never been shown here. It's a shame. But it's shocking. These were all really cool kids, really young, wonderful, bisexual, gay. I mean, you know, I've never really thought about that. I don't see those things. I, I just like it. I like people 
carrying on and dressing up. I do. But I hadn't done that for a long, long time. And I was really nervous. But I had carte blanche. You know, I could say what I want. David handled me very well. Loving, respectful, but quite disciplined. Very good. I react very badly to sort of patriarchal behaviour. And he didn't do that at all. So there was I Got You, Babe, which was a great honour. I mean, much greater than I realised at the time, you know. I'd been told at 17 that this is only going to last three years. And I was kind of watching the hairs on my wrist saying, well, when will all this be over then? You know, didn't really understand at all. But I thought it was fantastic. I felt embarrassed because I couldn't really sing like Cher. Of course, I'm sure David didn't want me to sing like Cher. Nobody cared about that. It was a lot of fun. We did it in a few days with his band. And for me, one of the most amazing things is that the other song I did was Noel Coward's 20th Century Blues, which nobody realises. You know, for me, it would be great if this was shown in my country. Then, a few years ago, I made my Weimar cabaret record with the Kurt Weill and Brecht and Friedrich Hollander material, which is another sort of bond I have with Bowie. He really understands, he really understands all that. But anyway, I was able, fighting tooth and nail, to get it, and I recorded this beautiful record, and I put on it, I didn't want it to be only Brecht and Weil, I wanted other people from the same period. So I put on a couple of Friedrich Hollander songs, and I really wanted to have a Noel Coward song, and the obvious one was 20th Century Blues, because I knew it, I'd played it before on the 1980 Floor Show, and, in fact, the record was called 20th Century Blues. I mean, I'm giving it you very much from my perspective, and I know there was a lot of other stuff going on. Um, and the other thing I really liked, which was also very nice, not everybody can do this, was um, my son, Nicholas, was seven or something at the time, or eight, and him and his cousin, Lev, came down to that whole thing and just sort of there they were, just being seven and eight, which is sort of quite a scene, you know. And how cool all those people were. Mick Ronson, all, all the, everybody was just so nice, cool, very nice. So tell me about the now infamous outfit you wore, which David designed for you, and caused quite a stir when it was shown on television in America. <laughs> they dressed me up as a, in a nun's habit... And it looked fantastic, and the makeup was brilliant. It had no sleeves. It was um, like a black bag, like a Yoko Ono thing, but terribly smart and well cut, fitting my rather elegant shoulders and all that shit. And it was completely open at the back. It was wild. And somehow I managed to get through it with a straight face, you know. <laughs> what did my lawyer once say to me? My wonderful American lawyer in New York, he said, finest ass on the eastern seaboard. So I suppose, I'm sure, I mean, David is a great appreciator and a connoisseur of feminine beauty, believe me, as are all these guys. I think. Yes. What really amazed me was the way he made these dreadful straight Americans do exactly what he wanted and just did it. I mean, you won't believe how wild it is for 1973 or whatever it was. 
you know, it was like I was so nervous and absolutely petrified. And without this, it's amazing that he got me to do all that. Amazing. And he wanted to record me. He wanted to make The Man Who Sold the World. When I said no, I mean, it's so dreadful, it's so dreadful. Quite, quite annoyed, and I, it was crazy, really, but I'm sure he now knows why. Um, he actually went off and furious. He did it with Lulu, and then I was furious. Well, all right, then it was trouble, you know, uh, all that sort of thing. And the other thing is that it marked the beginning of my return to form. It took a few more years, but it was the beginning of my... You can see I'm not high. I got through that. And then, in 77, I was ready to go in and record Broken English. And then I remember in at the Ritz in New York, I performed there. It was, apart from that show with David, that was my first live performance since 1965 or something. And it gave me my, my guts back. I'd been touring around Europe and then we went to New York and we played at the Ritz and David was there. And it, he was so proud and so pleased and sort of, you know, it was so, it was very good. Even, you know, so much of my life is sort of just lived on a very unconscious level and I'm always right. I was waiting for my voice to change and it did, that's all. Is that too sappy? Of course it wasn't sappy, it was fascinating. That's Marianne Faithful from the Main Man Archive recalling how she was invited by David Bowie to be part of the now legendary 1980 floor show filmed at the Marquee Club in London in October 1973. There are some great pieces of memorabilia from that show and that whole period in rock history that are now part of an ever-growing archive of Main Man documents including photographs, articles, telexes, letters and production notes a lot of them never seen before that we're adding to the Main Man Label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. Next time, Main Man founder Tony DeFries continues his highlights of 1971, including the very interesting couple of months he spent working on a secret project with a Motown legend. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.